the 1,600 terawatt hour challenge, innovating our way to zero carbon. Interview with Gerard Reed, episode 58. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Gerard Reed, who has put out the 1,600 terawatt hour challenge. Not a running race, rather, it's how Europe can survive without Russian gas. Besides outlining other routes for gas to be imported into Europe, he has deeper thinking here. It's a fundamental shift that he's proposing for energy-intensive businesses and for households. As you'll hear in this interview, Gerard is both practical from his financial perspective and forward-leaning on innovation and the benefits for rapid deployment of renewables. Gerard is a co-founder and partner at Alexa Capital. He is also a fellow at the Institute of Environment at the University of Minnesota. He also is a podcaster. Gerard is the co-host of the Redefining Energy podcast, along with his blog post, Alexa Capital also publishes forward-leaning analysis of innovation in the energy sector. I've been a fan, seriously, since 20, uh, 2012 when they put out a report. I, we described this at the start of the interview. But still, he's, if we want to think about how this system is going to develop over the future, he is the person to talk to. What stood out to me most in this interview was how we delve into the topics he raised in this 1,600-hour challenge. Alexa Capital acts as a middleman in consultancy and financial transactions in the energy space. As you'll hear, this provides a voice that emphasizes the ability for industry to roll out new technologies to meet our demands for cleaner energy. But the incumbents, as he describes, and the current highly regulatory structure of the energy system is definitely preventing and acting as a dysfunctional system in the deployment of these more innovative and really low carbon energy solutions. So we get into why the market's dysfunctional. We can definitely see that in the high energy prices, but mainly that's the tip of the iceberg. A fundamental shift has to occur. Gerard delivers a well-articulated call for a holistic change to the energy system. From his perspective, Russia's war in Ukraine demonstrates the risk of relying on fossil fuels, and this was long in the making. Politicians and businesses, he says, failed to do their job to reduce their energy risks. And where does this leave us? Industry must become better managed, not giving subsidies to inefficient companies. As Gerard describes, the well-operated company will survive the price hikes because they were cautious. So the current energy crisis should be used to reform our energy regulations and market incentives to enable new energy technologies to come into the market. He gives us specific examples of how new technologies can alter and even increase uh, the amount of electricity and overall energy power that is delivered into the system. Listen in, and you'll hear how Gerard's 1,600 terawatt hour challenge can be done. And just a final note before we begin, I have actually some really good professional news. Until the end of May 2022, it's two months in the making right now, I'll be an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House here in London at the Royal Institute of International Affairs. I'm really honored to have this uh, role and be able to do, to do research. So this is going to be one of the first episodes I'm putting out, and I think I have to be appropriate and not make too many jokes. So no more jokes for the next two months. 
Okay. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. This week, I'm welcoming on Jared Reed, who is a co-founder and partner at Alexa Capital. He is a fellow at the Institute of Environment at the University of Minnesota, and more importantly, he is also the co-host of the Redefining Energy podcast. Gerard, welcome to the po- to my podcast, the My Energy 2050 podcast. Nice, nice to be here, Michael. Great, thank you. Um, first, I actually before we begin, I want to thank you so much for your work at uh, Alexa Capital. And this sounds kind of weird, but you released a report in 2012 called The Dawning of the Digital Energy Revolution. And I've used that ever since in my classes teaching and also my research. And I've seen it cited in, in multiple publications. So thank you very much. We were, we were a bit ahead of our time at the time, actually. And that, and that report caused a lot of pain and anguish between myself and my partner, Bruce. <laughs> but I believe it. But but it was it has this foresight in it. Well, that's good to hear. Okay, well, yeah. That's, you know, actually, <laughs> you're probably right. And actually, it was. I suppose. Look, that's how we we founded our business on the basis of that. Really, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just this is why I, I use it, and it's still actually relevant now. I I think oh, the students aren't going to like old material from 2012. But it's still completely relevant. So I just want to thank you for it. So you founded your business on that. And well, yeah, it was sort of almost like a strategy discussion right, between myself and Bruce. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. What were we going to do? What were we going to focus on? And what was important and what was not important going forward. Right. Yeah, excellent. And, and actually, that goes to my first question for you is how and why did you get involved in energy? And you can go as far back or why did you start Alexa Capital? Uh, Totally by accident. So I got into energy. I was um, I was the head of research in a business in, in Germany called First Berlin, which was an equity research house, independent equity research house. And we were covering, we were covering sort of a whole pile of companies, but I was also covering some of the wind companies at the time. And then um, an investor of mine said, listen, Jared, I'm not going to do and make an investment into a solar company. Would you go and have a look at the company for me and do a bit of due diligence? And I sort of came back to him and told him it was a bit of a joke. Like, Don't put your money in this. And he said, no, 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 no. He says, I want you to go and meet the founder. And uh, and I did. And I was blown away by the foresight of the founder who was explaining to me why solar silicon panels were going to be very similar to semiconductors and why there was going to be dramatic cost reductions and performance improvements. And I believed him. My client made a lot of money, and then I sort of became the one-eyed man in the lion in the land of the blind, and that sort of rest is history. Ah, uh-huh. so. excellent. And then maybe maybe we could move on to Alexa Capital because you've really built up this this uh, consulting firm. I would say it's more than that. And how did you take actually? Yeah, the the report I mentioned and build on that. Okay, well, I suppose, first and foremost, myself and Bruce were in the U.S. Investment Bank, Jeffrey. So I was in charge of the equity research team that was looking at sort of clean tech. So that was looking at solar companies, wind companies, and advising investors what to do with their money. And then on the other side, Bruce was in charge of the investment banking business. So both of us sort of left Jeffrey's, and we were thinking about what we were going to do next. And we formed Alexa, and we also said to ourselves, okay, we really wanted to sit down and sort of think to ourselves, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to make sure that we position ourselves 
strategically correctly in the in the right way and and then that's why we sort of wrote that paper at the time really it was more to help us more than anything else and make sure we were aligned and i suppose now um what we do is merge and acquisition advisory work and uh and adv- general sort of capital markets advisory work in and around this transition really working with companies who have got very interesting technologies or who want to build platforms to make change happen i suppose that's that's what we're about mm-hmm. could you give some examples yeah of course so um we did a financing about a year and a half ago of a company called oxford pv which is a next generation solar technology company and what they have done is they've got a whole pile of intellectual property rights in and around what's called peroxide and the idea with this peroxide technology is you put it on top of a crystalline silicon cell and you increase the efficiency of that cell significantly, which means you get more energy out of a, a unit panel. And that actually reduces the cost uh, to the customer because um, you know, just, it just, you're getting more out of a, you know, out of a square unit of area. Uh, and they're, they're in the process of building a pl- production plant now. They're in production right now. That's the type of thing we do, yeah. So, uh, are, are these these uh, essentially you're increasing the efficiency then of a of a panel? Then is yeah, this... yeah, they're up, up towards thirty mm-hmm. percent. Wow. So if you think of it today, a panel today, best panels are probably twenty two percent, but if you can get towards thirty percent, that's like a game changer, right? Mm-hmm. Is this where the industry overall, maybe solar and wind, which are now established uh, renewable technologies, it's just a matter of increasing the efficiencies of these units now. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's what I would say. The, the, the best way to describe it from, certainly if you look at solar and wind are very different. So from a solar perspective, what you're doing, trying to do is you're trying to use less silicon. That's what you're trying to do, right? Use less silicon going forward, number one. And secondly, put in mixed new materials in with that silicon, silicon to enable you to get more electricity out of that sun that's hitting the panel. That's really what it's about. And it's, and I'd say the second thing in solar is just making it much simpler to install solar. And already solar is, is, is easy to install, right? Um, you and me, we could probably do, uh, if we're given the funds, and someone said, here's the land, we could build a gigawatt power station within a year, right? Without technical expertise, okay. we could do this, right? But I would say to you, now we're getting to plug and play in solar so that it's going to be really simple to put stuff on your roof and things like that. Comfort. You literally just plug it in. Um, that's that's where you're going to in that. And so I see st- significant cost reductions across solar in the next few years. If I look at, say, something like wind, wind's a more difficult one because wind is all about increasing the height of, of, the, of, of the turbine. If you do that, the more higher you get, the better the winds are. Uh, but the issue that you have is it just becomes a, it just an, it becomes an engineering feat, um, and 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 also the issue that a lot of the wind companies would have is that people don't want to have these huge big turbines near to them, right? So you might put them offshore or something like that. Um, um, but there's not the same. I would say there's not the same cost down effect that you have in solar. Uh, because solar really is a semiconductor, but, but wind is wind is still interesting going forward. I would say, and then you've got look at other technologies like like lithium iron. Lithium iron has got a very similar cost road map to to solar, 
And it, although it's not a semiconductor, what you're seeing is massive scale effects and significant changes and improvements in the materials that go into lithium ions. So you've got different type of chemistries, different kind of anodes, different kind of electrodes, and, uh, uh, and that's also going to uh, continue improving going forward, you know. Is this one of the reasons that offshore wind uh, is seen as something that's really going to come up now, far, far offshore wind? Yeah, because the uh -huh. thing about offshore wind is you've got capacity factors, in other words, how often it's running, of 50% of the time, right? That's pretty impressive. And if you've got an onshore wind park, depending on where you are, and it could be somewhere between 20% and, and maybe 35%, right? And that's really, really, really important if you want to get to the point where your economy is based on on, on renewables, you want to have high capacity factors. That's what you need to have, because if you don't have high capacity factors, then you need to have balance it with something else. Mm -hmm. So that your, your main work at Alexa Capital is financing then. And could you explain uh, what type of financing you're, you're doing? Yeah, so we're a middleman. We're like a broker. That's what we are. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, somebody needs money and somebody uh, who has money and you're in between or you have somebody that wants to buy a particular asset or a particular technology and someone who has to sell it. That's sort of what we do and we're, we're, we're in between. And, what, and, and, and um, in, an, in, an, you know, in addition to that, what you're adding in is like just, I mean, I like compare it to selling a house. That's a real pure brokerage deal. You bring them the house, show them what's going on, and you take your fee and run. What you've got is a quite a significant um, project management capabilities that have to go on in and around a transition because the, the due diligence of of whether we buy that technology and how much you buy it for it's much more opaque and difficult to do than a house where you sort of look at the house and go well there was a house down the road went for that and you know that's so much a square meter but much easier but you know just think think of it like 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 you're a broker but what as i said you're in addition doing is adding quite a lot of service value-add services around that to the buyer or the seller of whatever you you happen to have have been selling, right? Mm -hmm. I have my opinions, but do you see? And maybe I know your answer, but what do you see finance as maybe an overlooked component to making a much bigger renewable energy transition happen? Actually, it's not even just overlooked; it's completely forgotten, and people, and you do this at your peril because um, if I look at the transition. Uh, the transition is all about putting capital to work, right? You have to build grid, you have to build hardware. That's what you really have to do as you make this transition happen. And to make it as cost effective as possible, the most important thing is to have the lowest cost capital. And the system that we have in the energy markets is not set up for the lowest cost of capital, right? It was set up for oil companies who actually had high cost of capital because what they were doing is drilling in very difficult areas and a lot of risk there, et cetera, et cetera. And the system was set up so to enable them to make good returns given their risk. Well, electricity is completely different. And even, sorry, the power markets are set up to sort of, in a similar way to the oil markets uh, where, um, where you're rewarding, um, where, where what you're doing is you're trying to make sure that the, energy company covers the costs at any moment of their fuel costs, right? We go, well, I don't have fuel costs in, the, in, in a renewable world, right? I've got a, a solar panel, it doesn't have it. Yeah. So it's all about CapEx. And uh, it's part of the reason why I've sort of 
actually, I suppose, started the, the writing blogs many years ago, but also even um, the podcast, because it's important to explain that you can't do this transition with the old way of doing things, right? And the old way of doing things was you would leave the utility, make a decision. Ah, yeah, yeah, there's probably going to be scarcity in the market going forward. Ah, yeah, and if I look at the power plant, ah, yeah, I'll build a gas generator, right? That's what he would do. Um, now it's a completely different story because we've got periods of the day where there's negative power prices, right? So, and if I look at that now and I go, well, if I build more and more solar in this, that's going to just alleviate the situation, make it worse, right? So you go, well, okay, then I'm not going to build. Um, and then you sort of say it requires quite a radical rethink in the whole system. If you're going to do this energy transition in an efficient, low cost, fast fashion. And I would say the concern I'd have is it's very difficult for that to happen because you've got incumbent interests that are, if I take the case of the state, United States, right? You've got, you've got a, there's nothing much changed in that whole energy system in a hundred years. So a lot of, a lot, a lot, in a lot of states, you don't have any competition whatsoever. So you've got a regulated utility who just goes to the regulator and said, this is what I want to do. And they argue a bit and, you know, they let them do it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, where is your incentive to innovate? Where is your incentive to renewableize, to change, to allow competition to come? They've known. So that like, that's, that's an, you know, that starting environment, then it's very difficult to go and force change. And I would argue that the change that we're going through from fossil fuels to a, a cleaner world is the biggest change we've had in our energy space and you know since the beginning of the 20th century mm -hmm. so you, you you find that uh, regulation then is still not sufficient enough to encourage uh, the deployment of more renewables no and i still i'm still waiting for the day when i meet an intelligent regulator uh, um and no criticism to the to the individuals who work for the regulators because they're also, their hands are bound as well by a lot of old rules and old thinking. And, um, and, and, and even if they want to change, they probably can't make the changes that are needed. Um, so again, it, 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 to make the transition happen, you, you, you need to have, first of all, you need to take a really systemic view. And, and, and we, what we've done a good job of is deciding what we need to do. So I can go to the IEA and they will tell us, this is what we need to do to decarbonize, but they don't tell you how. And so the work has to be, how do we decarbonize? And how do we do this in an intelligent, cost-effective, and as least disruptive way as possible? And that, that thinking... It's not really going on, to be honest, Michael. That's yeah. what I would say. Yeah. And then uh, I want to come back maybe to the finance in a minute. But but now, of course, we have these high gas prices, both natural gas and, and you know, oil as well. And what what's the signal being sent out now about uh, the investment to renewable energy? Because obviously, if we're the one of the proposals for the commission, EU or even in the UK, is we have to speed up this transition and have more deployment of renewables. But we also see that the market's not working, even in fossil fuels. Well, it's it's not working in fossil fuels, and it's not working in the renewables area either. So, so let's be clear, what you've got is a broken market structure at present. 
And that requires, it doesn't require a Band-Aid put on it. It requires really radical rethinking of where we want to go and then what's the best way to incentivize us to get there. That's what's required. Um, and I don't see that thinking going on. And, and I could argue why, and I could say that a lot of the economists and policymakers are stuck in, let's say, this old world view of fossil fuels being the center of the energy system and being set up for them, but not being set up, as I said, for this era of high capex, low operating cost renewables. Uh, it's a completely, completely different world. And, um, and I think that's the biggest challenge actually we have going forward. It's not what we have to do again, it's how do we do this? And of course, also, I would say some level of systemic thinking in this space, which is often, oftentimes not there. And I, I mean, if you look at the energy markets at present, right? Um, just let's talk about some of the issues yes. that are there at present. Number one is what what's happened is the volatility in the market has caused a whole pile of companies um, to be have liquidity issues. Some some of them have loads of cash in the balance sheet, and some of them don't. And the guys who are actually supplying the power are, and the energy have liquidity issues, even though they you think to yourself, power price is going up, energy price is going up, we're in a good situation. But because of the way the contracts work, either via uh, um, a power market or via customer, they have to give guarantees over to that customer. And so what you're seeing is certainly Germany now, um, and this is just in the month of March, there's three utilities that they've given emergency financing to just to make sure that they can meet margin calls. And um, so that we have to really, 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 really think about how that whole hedging system works. And utilities have in some ways been very spoiled by what's been going on the last few, which is power prices going down every year. And the industrial customer on the other side is going, oh, powers of power prices are going down. I don't need to hedge. I don't need to do this. And now suddenly it's all gone. Hell is loose and they're all going, oh. But, you know, I would argue this is really poor risk management by the industrial companies and by the utilities. And you can't bail them all out. You just can't. We have to face facts that they've made mistakes. But you do have to look and say there is market structure, structural issues there. And I also say, more important is, if to really think about what the price signal does, is the price signal should send you a price to invest or not to invest, okay? But what the issue is, is that you've got a whole pile of generation or infrastructure there already. And so the price signal is basically saying to you, don't build anything because we've got enough. And so, yeah, the question then is, how do you incentivize new build? Well, that means you sort of have to close some of this fossil fuel. That's number one. But I would argue even at that, the issue is that you've got now this variable renewables. And the result of variable renewables is the so-called capture price, which is the price you get at any moment in the market. The capture price is going down and down and down the more wind or solar you put in the system. Right, that's that's a factor. In the United US, they talk about California talk about duck curve, and we have to think about how do we allow, how do we change the system to allow um, 
to, 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 yeah, you have to change the system to allow the customer to benefit from these periods of low pricing and also to make sure that the guy who's building whatever it is that he's building gets the return he needs. And I would say that there is massive risk, I call the phrase tail end risk, in the whole energy world because of the way we financed um, renewables. That's but, what I would say. And what is the role, I mean, and this was uh, stemming from my question then, what would be the role for policymakers? Because they're in a very difficult position. <laughs> I mean, they're, we could not say there's always a, a problem there, but if they have consumers and voters uh, complaining about the high prices, and we also have the strategy of rolling out more renewables and trying to get away from fossil fuels, is there a short-term strategy fix or short-term policy fix that can be instituted now or we just have to reach, actually dig deep into the regulations and redo as you're proposing well, the market? Well, 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 Michael, they've got an excuse now. And the excuse is we've got a, an economic war going on between ourselves and Russia. And that's a fact. And you, I think they should be going out and sort of saying, guys, public, we need to change our behavior here. And, and explain to them what's going on with price. And listen, I've no, no doubt you might have to help the, the very needy, but you have to say, guys, we need to change the way we engage with energy and put campaigns in to enable people to, to help people to think about solutions. Uh, most extreme, obviously, is rationing and stuff like that. That's what I think you should be doing. Um, however, they're not doing that. What they're doing is the exact opposite. The exact opposite is they're reducing the taxes on the fossil fuels. And you sort of go, guys, that's mad. Absolutely mad. If, I, if I'm hooked on drugs, you know, don't lower the price of the drugs for me, right? Don't yeah. do that. You know, help me get off drugs. That's the issue. So help people get off drugs and explain to them that you're a drug addict and that we need help. I mean, that's for me, like being really open. That's what I, that's what, I, that's what has to happen. So when I hear all these short fixes in the market, what this is, is just panic stations by uh, regulators and governments who were not prepared for what's going on. And I want to say one thing, this is not just the Ukrainian situation. This started happening nine months ago. And the reason it happened was because there was tightness in the gas market, global gas market because of a pickup of demand in China, in particular China, but also some of the other uh, countries like India. That's where the market got tight. Um, simple as that. Prices then bent up and then, you know, causes a little bit of panic in the market and goes up and, and then power prices went up because there's another factor as well, I would argue, is that we're closing quite a lot of power stations, nuclear and fossil fuel power stations across Europe. That creates tightness in the market. And you've got tightness on the, on, in the electricity market, and you've got tightness in the gas market, and crazy things happen in the margin, and prices exploded. But again, this was six months ago. And in addition, you've got carbon prices that have gone through the roof as well. So you've got this sort of whammy that's hit this industry, and now what you're seeing is utilities go out and say, well, it's all because of Ukraine. <laughs> I go, it's nothing, it's not because of Ukraine. Ukraine you might say is the final nail in the coffin, but it was happening before that. And uh, governments did nothing over the last nine months. I, I was saying to people, listen, 
wholesale power prices are up, retail prices are going to explode in 2022. There's just no way around it, right? Now, there is a way around it, Michael. There is, there is, of course, ways around it, yeah. But but the stuff about doing, you know, caps on gas prices and stuff like that, you sort of go, okay, caps on gas prices. If I have to buy the gas and, um, well, then I'm not going to supply it to you. If I can't make money by buying the gas to supply power and you put a cap on me, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to supply it. So then you that's great. With that, we have brownouts. I mean, come on. It's like, like some of the stuff that you're hearing is absolute and, and really bad signals. Uh, the EU talking about, you know, if you leave the, read their writing, oh, you know, reforming the carbon emissions market, right? Well, of course, if you think you're, 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 you're going to reform the carbon emissions market, you're going to get out of them. So you you press sell. I mean, like, just the, 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 I, I just see the stupidity of the stuff going on across Europe, and I scratch my head and I go, "Oh my god, oh my god." Now maybe I'm being too open and forthright, with you, <laughs> but I, I, it's quite, it's quite ludicrous. What I see is is that there are a lot of people who are meant to be experts in this industry don't don't understand it. Um, that's what I see. Yeah, no, I I just think the state of the market. Everywhere, the state of the world is a reflection that things are not working. And I'm just wondering, though, is this a time we went through this period of competition, neoliberal, even we could say re-regulation rather than deregulation. And maybe are we entering a period where to create this transition to make it effective, actual and I'm really interested in your response by my proposal here, but government actually has to be much more engaged and actually manage in, in a fairly hard way, this transition with companies and not leave it up to the market to make this transition like, like ETS or something? So what we definitely need is governments to step in and put the regulatory framework in place. I say this incentive structure in place to enable us to decarbonize quickly. What I think would be a complete disaster is if governments try to nationalize the energy transition. Because what will end up happening will be massive mistakes, um, huge cost overruns, and, and actually bad decisions. And that, I would say, in a, in a world where, I would also add, in a world where you've got the speed of innovation is so ginormous, I'm talking about solar, wind, uh, and whatever, but actually, the speed of innovation is so quick. There could be innovation, say, i just give an example of the geothermal area that could change the whole way we look at energy overnight. And what you've got is a government who's got his plan and is telling, the, you know, telling their state-owned entities to do this, that, and the other thing. And then they miss the, the new game in town, right? That's the concern I'd have. But there's no doubt we need very good regulation and very good, not just direction, real real thinking around what's the best way to push this transition going forward. But I would be, I would actually look and say that actually, if I look what's going on now in terms of the energy markets and whatever, it's all caused by bad government policy. So the whole, and I, I mean, I'd be very, let's be, go, go through and be yeah. clear why it is. Yeah. If a business makes itself totally dependent on, on two suppliers, 
you'd say, that's a bit of a silly thing to do, guys. You need to go and actually, you need to go and expand there and go into real diversification. We've got countries in Europe who buy 100% of their oil from Russia. We've got countries, a whole pile of countries, you know, that are buying 40, 50% of their gas from them. That's really stupid. Okay, that's called bad risk management. So it starts at the governments, my opinion, right? Um, and they did nothing about it, right? In fact, they've increased that dependency on that, on, on Russia over, over the years. Um, so that's why I'd be cautious about getting them. I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about getting them too involved in telling us what to do uh, for that reason. But I would also say another thing is that if we really want to push this energy transition going forward, we need to get the people involved, right? That we, and this is, and this is not the case. Yeah, you have the Friday for the future, they'll go out and do their marches and do that. But 95% of people don't understand anything about energy and they just think, nah, and they waste it. And, uh, and, and if they don't change their behavior, oh, it's great, you put a solar panel on your roof and you buy an electric car, but that's not real behavior change. We have to get the people to begin to make behavioral change and demand behavioral change. And then the governments will go, okay, but well, now we need to do something, right? That's what I'd prefer to say, coming up with ideas and, and of what you can and can't do going forward. That would be my hope of what should happen. And I think... Mr. Churchill's words, don't waste a good crisis. This is a crisis and we now need to not waste it. And how do you not waste it? Well, not wasted it is by going and saying, we need to change as a people, we need to change our relationship to energy and begin to educate people on how they can do it and whatever and, and go from that. And I think that would be a, from lots of perspectives from one, just to save us money, right? Um, it'll help us in this economic war with Russia and it will help us to decarbonize, right? And clean up our environment. That's, that's that, like the change in my thinking is that we have to go much more bottoms up. Um, and I don't want these bureaucrats um, doing this because I don't think they have the capabilities to do it. Uh, so would you class, I mean, there's some follow-up I could do into energy efficiency for homes and everything. But before I, I go there, I would like to ask about, so maybe would electric cars count as behavior change or are they just continuation of our current practices? No, of course it is, Michael, right? Of course it is. It is, right? But let's be clear, electric cars are expensive and so therefore you're the wealthy part of your society. What we've got at present is the people who are being most hit by... What's going on in the energy market is the poorer sections of our society and they can't buy the electric cars. So how do you help them to save money? What do you say to them to do this? And I understand short term, you might be able to give them some form of um, tax incentive or you give them some form of something. You can't do this for everybody across Europe, right? You just can't do this. So you have to come up with a better strategy to it. So, so again, I'm of the view is honesty is, is the thing we need to do at this point in time and, and get really people involved. And, and if we went back to the oil crisis in, in the 70s, that's what we did across the world. We got people to make behavioral changes. And um, I, 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 I see that we have to do the same again. But I would say we don't know what's going to happen in Russia. 
Um, if the situation gets worse there, and let's assume for whatever reason, there's no oil, gas or coal coming in from Russia, we've got a real problem in Europe. Yeah, well, we need to be preparing for that now, right? Yes. And uh, I'm not seeing this. I'm seeing, I'm seeing blah, blah, blah coming out from lots of people. Um, that's what I'm seeing. No, no, I mean, the timeline to tr transition away from, yeah, all these resources from Russia is five years or something in, in the EU, maybe even longer than some countries are still saying, no, they don't want to get away from Russian oil and gas uh, in, in Eastern Europe, like in Hungary. Um, but then should this mean that we should have this full scale on, I would say, investment to energy efficiency into homes? Would that... I mean, that's a leading question. <laughs> Is, no, no, of course. No, no, I sorry. mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which, but again, the, the whole homes thing, like I'm in an old home and yeah. I have not fully transitioned my home to zero carbon because I can't get the people to do it. <laughs> right. You haven't got the capabilities to do it. I have an old house where, yes, I've solar on the roof and I've got a battery. I'm heating with electricity. I'm heating with uh, wood downstairs. But, you know, to try and get a heat pump in here, I mean, the people go, oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, it's too difficult. Oh, okay. I mean, so there's there's a, a retraining that's needed of people to enable them to, to do what we need to do. Because if I wanted to really, if I really wanted to fully decarbonize my house, it's not just about putting in a heating system. It's making sure the heating system is connected to my battery, connected to the car, connected to the panel and connected to the power system. And it's managing that in an intelligent way that I don't need to think about. Yeah. Uh, that's where we have to go. But there's so many regulations that stop you doing this. It's incredible. No, no, I understand my, so I met my friend Steve's and he just had the windows replaced two days ago. And I was like, oh, did you get, because I had to ask, did you get government money to help you replace those windows? And he goes, no, no, I don't, I don't think there's any money available. And I'm like, do you know of any scheme? He goes, yeah, my auntie, I think she replaced her back door, you know, with some, some help or something, but he, he couldn't say. And then they installed the windows and two of the windows, the glasses are already broken. So they, they arrived with broken glass. So I think I think it goes to maybe the skills shortage or the whole re structural revamping of labor that probably has to have occur at the same time as supply chains or where things are produced and how they're produced for for homes for for the energy efficiency. Um, that that was my story. But then my my question would be, um, with new technology, is this one of the areas that governments should be putting more money in? I mean, you're in the middleman on the finance side, and we often talk about generation as a as the area to invest in. But energy efficiency itself actually delivers a huge benefit in not even needing that. Should yeah, well, well, let's be clear. If you look at the millions of electric devices across the world, 99% of them are small devices in our homes and buildings that do not produce electricity. And we ignore them all the time. And it is really, really critical to be focused on them and make sure that when you are changing whatever it is in your home, that it is more efficient than the device before it, right? And, um, and I would also say the other thing around that is critical is a circular economy, right? Um, and I just, Sorry, look at my home here. 
and I, I look at the amount of cables that I have here. So, and why do I have all these cables? Well, and I've got all these little black boxes everywhere that are small little transformers. They're converting AC to DC. I sort of go, okay, I've got power losses in all these boxes. They're all warm. All of them are warm, right? That's yes. heat losses coming out. You sort of go, okay, this is great. So getting all this electricity in is coming out through, is wasting out through that. There's so much that we can do, but it requires... It just requires things getting to getting to market, technologies getting to market. I find my own perspective is a lot of technologies just don't go to market because of of legislative and regulatory hurdles, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is this, um, yeah, it gets us back to regulation. I wanted to just change it because the reason I wrote to you was actually because you published this great blog post called the 1000... Correct. Yeah, one thousand six hundred terawatt hour challenge. How Europe can survive without Russian gas? And I was just wondering, what what prompted you to write that? I mean, were you quite angry about everything, or you just well, wanted to find? Well, a, a mixture of, I suppose, really frustration and powerlessness. Um, frustration with um, with the institutions that have allowed this to happen. Um. And then I suppose the, the also the, the powerlessness in the, in the sense that you're looking at this Ukrainian situation, you got people dying every day and you're sort of going, well, what we can do to, what can I do to help them? What can I do to make sure this help doesn't happen again? And then I said, well, what you need to do is come up with solutions because people are in crisis mode and in crisis mode, they need to, they need, to, they need, they need people that can help them see through the mist and come up with a path forward. And actually, that 1600 terawatt hour challenge, you could actually write, read it and say, that's pretty negative, Jerry, because what you're saying is, if we have to get off gas, this is what we have to do. Yeah, you are. But on the other hand, actually, what I'm also saying is, we can do it. We can do it. It's not, we can't do it. It's, we can do it. Uh, that's that's what I was trying to do. Just give people, like, and like that's why you've read it out to me, Michael. That's why yeah. I'm in this chat. And to, to, to get this message out is that there is a path forward um, because there is a big dialogue at present, certainly coming from the North American oil industry, which is, we told you so, we told you so, <laughs> we're back, we, you need us forever. And you sort of go, no, we probably need you for the next year and a half to two years. After that, we're going to need you less and less. I mean, that's sort of the message that I want to give. And that there, it's not only that there's just an alternative, is because I'm always very convinced. People laugh at me about solar. I was speaking to one of the Nordic utilities recently, and I told them that you know solar was going to be the bedrock of their power system, and they thought I was mad. But actually, all you have to say is, in every single energy system that's ever been in the history of mankind, the lowest cost alternative becomes the bedrock of the system. Solar is the lowest cost. It's also the easiest to install. That becomes the bedrock. So your system, we're going to look back in 25 years' time, and this, and it's going to be based around a solar system, which is quick and cheap to install. Okay, You might say it's mad, but that's economics for you, right? And that's why, and I'm not against nuclear. I'd love to actually see nuclear. I, I think from a theoretical point of view, this is amazing what nuclear can do costs and the and the time required to build the current generation of technology is such that 
it will only be minor niche yeah. market going forward unless there's radical innovation um which changes that right yeah yeah it's a long-term cost and i was just uh wanted to follow up you mentioned industry and industry needs to change as well and i think in the article as well you mentioned rationing how how can an industry is really having to deal with these high prices and you mentioned they didn't hedge uh thinking about the prices going higher because they've been benefiting from low prices what what how should industry respond now going forward that are really energy intensive okay so if i was the ceo of an energy intensive business today the first thing i would be doing is crying to the government and saying please help me out right that's number one so i'm just saying that because they are doing this and they will continue to do this but number two then you have to look and say well how can i secure low cost gas going forward if you need gas. And that's a real, real challenge for them because even if you know you move to LNG in Europe, it still means that your cost of gas is three times what it was in the States, your competitors in the States. So you've got problems straight away. Um, so then you really need to think about, well, what can I do to really radically change that? And if I was a CEO again, I'd be pushing the governments to give me the incentives to go to go to alternatives as in go to whether it's you know go and use fo- electricity fully for your processes or to actually decarbonize the gas and go to hydrogen and stuff like that that's what I'd be doing um or really pretty radical is they're just going to close production because they can't compete and and again we have to be very, very careful bailing these businesses out, I would just say, because maybe some of them just don't deserve to be bailed out because they haven't done the right things in the last few years. Now, the well, really well-managed guys will know this issue and will have, have secured the gas, the electricity at the prices they need, and they're okay. And I don't know how long their contracts are, but most of them should be okay. So. That's what I would say. Now, what do you take out of this going forward is is that risk management is really, really critical, whether you're a buyer of energy or a seller of energy. Um, But I would say it's not going to get easier for you because I could make a prediction now, which is, I don't know the exact timing, but let's say it's a year and a half to two years away. Yeah, oil prices will be back down at $30. Right, gas prices will fall from their levels they're at now by seventy-five percent. Coal prices will half. It's and it's and and again, it's back to marginal economics, which is crazy things happen at the margin. And once you have only a small bit of excess supply in these markets, prices collapse. And if Europe decarbonizes very quicker than what we thought over the next few years, you've got less desire and less demand for all these fossil fuels. And by the way, if you're China, you're looking at this from a geopolitical point of view and going, oh shit, we're not energy independent, which is strategically puts them at a great disadvantage against the United States, for example. Um, And they're going to go, how are we going to change that? Well, how are you going to change it is obviously linking in as much as you can into the Saudi Arabias of this world and and the Russias, but they know that's also 
not not the long-term solution because they've just seen what's happened between Russia and Europe, our codependent partner who we thought would never go to war with us. Um, so they're going to go to renewables in a big way and they're going to electrify in a big way. So you've got two big parts of the world that are going to decarbonize quicker. And actually, I could then go and look at, say, India and say the exact same thing there, because the issue that we now have is we've got fertilizer prices going through the roof, um, which impacts food. So then you look at this and you go, actually, I need to probably change my how I manufacture, how I, how I, how I, my agricultural practices as well. Um, what I need to do there. And then, so I, I really think this is a, we're in a moment of radical change, I would say, right? That's what I, that's, that's my feeling and sense of it. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Gerard. Okay, well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. My, my, my pleasure, Michael, my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.